Hii ni idhaa ya Kiswahili ya Channel Africa ikitangaza kutoka Johannesburg, Afrika Kusini. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. Today is Wednesday, the twenty-ninth of January. Uh, that much closer to the end of probably the longest month in everyone's calendar. My name is Samora Mangesi and I'm not in studio alone. I'm with Jolani Tullo, Nosetle Zuma as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. South Africa's Health Minister, Dr. Zwilim Kize, assures citizens that uh, the country is prepared against coronavirus should it enter its borders. Three Horn of African countries have pledged to join forces in the fight against terrorism. And the Jewish society in Zambia says the history of colonialism and the Holocaust should be a component of education in Africa. We'll also be having your business as well as your sporting news a little bit later on in the hour. But right now, it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here is Joala Nitulo with your latest news bulletin. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. The South African National Defence Force says there are high-level talks to establish a new government department that will specifically deal with border management. Major General Michael Dehuda was addressing the, me- the media at the launch of the Armed Forces Day in Bulukwane in the Limpopo province. Government is concerned about the country's borders uh, being porous, including the northern side between South Africa and Zimbabwe. Dehuda says the Defence Force cannot alone control the border. Partly a South African National Defence Force issue, but it is a multi-departmental uh, environment. There is currently high-level talks to establish a new department, that of Border Management Agency, and that will hopefully encompass all the role players to ensure that there is better uh, migrant control. Still in South Africa, the Human Rights Commission has taken a decision to withdraw from any further engagements with a group of undocumented foreign nationals in Cape Town in the Western Cape Province. This follows alleged threats made by one of the leaders of the group occupying the Central Methodist Church against SAHRC Commissioner Chris Nissen. In a statement, the Commission says it notes with concern the alleged threat made by JP Balos. Balos is believed to have threatened to kill Nissen before the start of court proceedings at the Western Cape High 
court. The court proceed the court proceedings follow an application by the city of Cape Town seeking the enforcement of its bylaws. The commission says it is considering its legal recourse regarding the threat. The Mozambican government has suspended issuing visas upon arrival to travellers from China in order to curb the spread of the coronavirus. The decision was taken at a cabinet meeting held on Tuesday. Minister of Justice Helena Kida said the measure was temporary. Mozambican students studying in China have requested to be evacuated from the country until the outbreak of the deadly virus is controlled. It is unclear whether they will be allowed back in the country. There are several suspected coronavirus cases that have been reported in Kenya, Ethiopia and the Ivory Coast. The authorities in Nigeria say an outbreak of Lassa fever has killed 41 people since the beginning of the month. Nigeria's Center for Disease Control says there have been more than 250 cases of Lassa fever, which belongs to the same family of the Ebola and Marburg viruses, but is far less deadly. About 170 died during an outbreak last year. Lassa is spread by contact with rat feces or urine and is endemic in Nigeria. And finally, Russian prosecutors are questioning former drug squad police officers over allegations that they planted narcotics on an investigative journalist to discredit him. President Vladimir Putin said this at his annual news conference in last December that the officers were facing criminal charges. The BBC's Sarah Rainsford has the story. Five former police officers are being questioned, accused of planting drugs in Ivan Golunov's rucksack and at his flat. The journalist's lawyers believe it was an attempt to shut down his high-profile investigations, a method that's been used before to sideline opposition figures here. But the public outcry this time was unprecedented, as was Mr Golunov's swift release in response. And now the prosecution of police, including senior officers. The investigative committee says those officers bought and handled the drugs they planted illegally. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. South Africa's Minister of Health, Dr. Zwelin Kize, has reiterated that the country is prepared to detect and manage any case of coronavirus that might enter its borders. Kize was speaking today in Johannesburg City as he briefed the media about the country's readiness to tackle the virus. Coronavirus has so far killed at least 132 people in China, while more than 6,000 cases have been recorded across the country. Elizabeth Ledicha reports. A reassurance from South Africa's health minister, Dr. Zwelim Kize, that the coronavirus does not pose any national threat to the country at this stage. South Africa has responded rapidly to ensure that the coronavirus does not become a national threat. As a department, it is standard procedure to monitor emergent outbreaks and we are currently tracking a plethora of pathogens, including those viruses of pandemic potential like H5N1. We also then wish to reassure that coronavirus is no exception. We are working very carefully to ensure that we track everything around this virus. There are currently no cases of the coronavirus reported in South Africa or the African continent. While it's assumed that the virus is of animal origin, 
The exact source is not yet known. Speaking alongside Dr. Mkize in Johannesburg, Professor Cheryl Cohen of the National Institute for Non-Communicable Diseases, NICD, mentioned the several measures that have been put in place to keep the virus at bay. So firstly, the ports of entry are a very important place through which a patient infected with this virus could come. And there are a number of activities happening at the ports of entry. In particular, there is a temperature screening involving non-invasive thermal screening devices. And there are very detailed procedures in place to manage any traveller who is found to have a fever and could potentially be infected with this virus. In addition, activities have been strengthened, particularly at the OR Tambo International Airport, which is our our busiest airport. And and these activities also have been particularly focused on flights uh, coming from China. It is also possible that a case could develop symptoms after arriving in the country and then present to a healthcare facility. And to cater for this, guidelines have been widely distributed to clinicians throughout South Africa. Now, these criteria include a number of elements, but the most important elements are firstly the clinical presentation of the patient, so what are the signs and symptoms, and the most important signs and symptoms um, are fever and cough. And the second important component to consider in whether a person is a suspected case is whether the person has a travel history to any of the areas where the virus is widely circulating or whether the person has a history of close contact with a known infected case. Meanwhile, the Chinese government has sealed off one and other cities in central Hubei province, effectively trapping more than 50 million people, including thousands of foreigners, in a bid to contain the virus. Dr. Mkiza says they are monitoring the situation, adding that it's not yet necessary to get South African citizens out of the lockdown Huan city. Regarding the safety and health security of our citizens living in China, a meeting was convened by the Chinese Foreign Ministry with Diplomatic Mission. In summary, the government of the People of Republic of China has assured us and reassured us that there is no evidence to support the necessity to evacuate foreign nationals living in Wuhan city and they have called for calm in this respect. All persons entering or leaving Wuhan are subjected to a 14-day quarantine to ensure that they do not develop symptoms. Foreign nationals who need medical assistance will be treated like Chinese citizens and be afforded all the medical care that is necessary in that area. Embassies are also enabled to support those locked out and locked inside Wuhan. And in our discussion with the Minister of International Cooperation, Dr. Naledi Pandor, she indicated that Dirko is aware of at least 35 South Africans in Wuhan City. They are in touch with the citizens who are there as well as the authorities, and therefore if there's any need to respond or to do anything, they will be in a position to judge that. At the moment, they believe that uh, we just need to monitor that situation. Several cases of coronavirus have already been reported in countries across the world, including the U.S., Japan, South Korea, Thailand, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, Australia, France, Vietnam and Nepal. However, no fatalities have been reported outside China. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Elizabeth Lidira in Johannesburg. Horn of African countries have pledged to join forces in the fight against terrorism. A joint communique from the leaders of Somalia, Ethiopia and Eritrea after a meeting in Asmara says the countries will adopt a joint plan of action with two main objectives of consolidating peace, stability and security as well as promoting economic and social development in the region. The Horn of African region has been dogged by conflict for years, causing deaths and destruction of property. 
For more on the plan and its significance, Channel Africa spoke to Rashid Abdi, Horn of Africa researcher at the International Crisis Group. There is no doubt that uh, this is a, a very significant uh, development. And um, the three countries have been uh, uh, holding a series of meetings in the last uh, one year uh, to try to formulate uh, a strategy for economic integration. And now one has to remember that uh, Ethiopia, uh, which has been leading uh, the initiative, um, has the largest uh, economy in the Horn of Africa. Sure. Uh, it has about 100 uh, million people. It is landlocked, whereas Eritrea and Somalia both have um, basically have access to the sea. So I think um, the, the thinking behind this is that if the three countries come together around an economic integration plan, then I think uh, there is a win-win solution for the problems of economic underdevelopment uh, in the region. But I think also it is significant because uh, Horn of Africa is also a deeply conflicted region. So economic integration also, I think, will help uh, stabilize the region. And also, um, I think uh, we will begin to see uh, a resolution of uh, some of the outstanding major conflicts. Uh, And I think it is noteworthy that uh, Ethiopia and Eritrea which have fought uh, basically two uh, major, you know, cross-border wars with, you know, enormous uh, casualties, you know, forged a peace pact. And I think this is also a strategy to consolidate that peace. But Djibouti was not part of the meeting on Monday. Does this concern you? to some extent because uh, I think you want uh, an inclusive process in the region because uh, the problem again is that if you have winners and losers then I think there is a potential that that could could bring complications uh, down the road. But I think uh, both the three leaders have reiterated many times that uh, this is not an exclusive process although it is so uh, for the time being being called a tripartite uh, alliance. I think the the strategy in the long term is to bring on board countries like Djibouti, but also Kenya, uh, as well as Sudan. The leaders have also agreed to prioritize the mobilization of their bountiful human and material resources uh, in order to boost the region's economic growth. The Horn of Africa countries have had poor economic growth for many decades, as you know. Do we know exactly what the plan says in terms of how this will be achieved? Yes, I think... um, in the in the communique, there was uh, there was uh, an indication that uh, the next step would be to set up um, a joint commission, uh, a more technocratic uh, you know um, commission that will look at uh, the next uh, you know steps uh, sure. that the three countries will undertake. So hopefully, I think uh, we will begin to see this plan uh, not just confined to the three leaders, but beginning to to find I think some kind of a, a resonance within uh, the bureaucratic. Uh, departments uh, of governments within the three countries but also I think the most important factor is also to have the people on board. There was a perception that uh, initially that this was uh, something that was largely elite driven Uh, and I think there is a recognition of that in the community that from now henceforth they will be working very close with their parliaments and their institutions to try to give some teeth to this uh, strategy. Since taking over the Prime Minister's position, Abiy Ahmed has made peace with Eritrea to end years of conflict, a feat that earned him worldwide praise and contributed to his Nobel Peace Prize win in 2019. Can he also take credit for the formulation of this plan? Absolutely. 
and I think, uh, you know, Prime Minister Abiy has been the prime mover uh, of this strategy. And I think uh, his thinking is that Ethiopia cannot be stabilized. Ethiopia cannot enjoy economic progress without, uh, um, you know, that also having, uh, without also the region uh, becoming uh, part of uh, this uh, larger, uh, you know, peacemaking initiative. Uh, His thinking is that... uh, Ethiopia's internal conflicts have are very much directly related to also conflicts elsewhere. Because remember, both Ethiopia and Eritrea used to support each other's proxies. Sure. So his thinking is that you know peace uh, is not just local; it is also regional. Uh, it is a good strategy, I think, he is pursuing. The problem which I think I have is that uh, Prime Minister Abiy has probably um, uh, overinvested in these external. Uh, initiatives and uh, is increasingly looking like somebody who is investing much more in regional uh, stabilization and regional you know initiatives rather than uh, resolving some of the very dire uh, you know internal uh, problems which he he faces and this is the ethnic conflicts in in Ethiopia but also uh, you know issues to do with the forthcoming elections sure. as well as uh, you know growing uh, political divisions And that was Rashid Abdi, Horn of Africa researcher at the International Crisis Group on the line from Nairobi, Kenya, talking to Kumbelo Mujalele. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, Bringing you the African perspective. The Media Institute of Southern Africa in Zimbabwe has released its annual State of the Media report, which takes a look at the media landscape and operating environment with regards to freedom of expression, access to information, digital rights, and media freedom in 2019. The report says the operating environment for journalists in Zimbabwe remained volatile in 2019, with the police linked to most of the human rights violations. Simon Muchemwa reports from Harare. Media Institute of Southern Africa, Misa Zimbabwe, on Tuesday in the capital released a report entitled State of the Media Report 2019, where the police were labeled as the worst human rights violators. While the number of journalists harassed and assaulted by the police in 2019 remained at par with the 2018 report, the working environment remained volatile owing to political contestations. According to Nyasha Nyakunu, the 2019 report was meant to improve the working conditions for Zimbabwean journalists. Nyasha is the MISA Zimbabwe Programs Coordinator. Assaulted by members of the police force while um, uh, conducting their lawful professional duties. So when you look at it, if we look at the, the scenario that obtained in 2018 and 2019, it, it remained uh, relatively unchanged in, in the context of uh, the number of assaults. Of course, 
will not be declined, which is um, what should continue to happen. But um, we would want, obviously, for the situation to improve. And then if we are to also look at uh, the number of cases involving the harassment of, um, of, of journalists while um, on duty in 2018, and with uh, eight uh, such cases, whereas in 2019, in terms of our own records and the records uh, that we have in terms of um, what we managed to record, we had um, seven cases of um, uh, harassment, which is also a, a decline. Of course, we're not the decline is positive, but the margins are still are still very, very low, which means that there's still a lot that needs to be uh, improved to ensure that journalists continue to uh, journalists work without any harassment or without any hindrances is provided for in terms of their right to uh, media freedom in terms of our constitution. While there were attempts by the government to unbundle the Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act, AIPA, the new laws were equally the same with the old laws. Various stakeholders in the media expressed the reservations by the government used the ruling party's majority in parliament to come up with laws that were not acceptable. According to the MISA report, government on one hand accelerated the passing of the cybercrime laws generally perceived as intended to keep free speech online. This follows the closure of the cyberspace in January 2019 during protests against the fuel price increases. Nyasha Nyakunu explained. Well, we'll say, of course, in 2019, we noticed some movement in terms of um, the media law reform uh, agenda is exemplified by the unbundling of the Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act, AIPA, during the gazetting of the Freedom of Information Bill and uh, the Zimbabwe Media Commission Bill, which is a movement towards the amendment of the discredited Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act, otherwise commonly known as, as AIPA. But nonetheless, those bills, what needs now to be ensured is to ensure that the gazetted bills uh, in terms of their provisions, their provisions are in sync with uh, the, the constitutional provisions that guarantee the right to media freedom, freedom of expression, and, uh, and access to information. The Zimbabwean main opposition party movement for democratic change, MDC, refused to recognize President Emerson Mnangagwa as leader of the country, leading to serious fights in parliament. Unfortunately, laws are made in the Augusta House, but the failure by the legislators from both parties to see with one eye has made the reform agenda a mere talk. Nyasha told Channel Africa. Well, I would say in terms of our engagements with the respective portfolio committees, it's not something that we would say that feasible. But towards the end of the year, we, we noticed that um, there were those differences in terms of failure to recognize certain chairpersons by virtue of the political parties that they belong to. And obviously, if that is not contained, it might have an impact on um, uh, the media law reform process. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchema. The Kibale Gold Mining Company, based in the northeastern Democratic Republic of Congo's province of Ituri, has reaffirmed its support to the country's economy. At a press conference held on Tuesday in Kinshasa, the company management emphasized Kibale's commitment to paying tax, employing local workers and improving social conditions. Jean-Noel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. 
The press conference held here on Tuesday was the Kibali Gold Mining Company's 41st one and this was the opportunity for the Chief Executive Officer Mark Bristol to express satisfaction in terms of the company's performance. The company's gold production has gone from 750,000 ounces in 2018 to 814,027 ounces in 2019, a result that has gone beyond the provisions of both Kibali and its own barrick company. It's now 10 years since Kibali Gold Mining is operating in this country's northeastern province of Ituri. The company has reaffirmed its support to the Democratic Republic of Congo's economy and development. According to the Kibali CEO, Mark Bristol, the company collaborates with the government and it's committed to paying all the taxes. It's important to pay taxes. It takes a long time to recover your investment. And, uh, and when the new mining code was introduced, it damaged some of those mines. They closed today and there are more mines that are going to close. But mining is not only about paying tax, it's important to pay tax. Mining is also about creating business for additional tax revenues. Like our, all our workers pay tax. By the way, all our workers in Kabali pay tax and the government doesn't give anything back. We supply the schooling, we invest in the schooling, we supply the infrastructure, we build the, the community, we build the roads, we maintain uh, the road all the way to Uganda, and we pay fuller tax, and we do the maintenance. We pay tax to the central government, this uh, province should get the benefits, the red of us, but it doesn't go to the governor. So there's a, so your point about let's make supporters of the economy of the eastern part of the country because you know hopefully with the new government we'll see more more presence Coming to the company's commitment to contribute to this country's development, the Kibali Gold Mining General Manager told the journalist the company is intervening to try and improve social conditions of people of Ituri. Cyril Mutombo said the company is an important partner of the Congolese government. 94% of its employees are Congolese since it gets the best people from geology and science in this country's universities. Cyril Mutombo. At this day, we have 94% of Congolese working with Kibali as we invest in the next generation that will take over. We get the best from all the university's faculty of geology and science. Meanwhile, Barrick Gold has said its 45% owned Kibali Gold Mine is continuing its technological advances with the introduction of truck and drill training simulators and the integration of systems for personnel safety, tracking and ventilation on demand. The Kibali CEO Mark Bristol explained that Kibali's continuing stellar performance is a demonstration of how a modern Tai One gold mine can be developed and operated successfully in what is one of the world's most remote and infrastructurally underendowed regions.
Jean Noel Pamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. The Jewish community in Zambia says the history of colonialism and the Holocaust should be a component of education in Africa so as to promote racial and human equality. The community believes the rising trend of anti-Semitism is part of Western countries as uh, part of Western countries has a potential of fueling hate among ethnic groups in Africa. Hilda Kekelwa reports. At the event to mark the Holocaust Commemoration Day in Livingston, Zambia yesterday, Jewish Society Chairperson Shalomi Abdukto said Holocaust should always be remembered as it serves as a sensitization platform to prevent a repeat of the horrifying era of the 1940s. He said educating the young generation on the importance of tolerance will help end ethnicity that has led to genocides in the world. Mr. Abdudo reminded Africans to also exercise tolerance towards the colonialists for the oppression, saying the mistreatment is no different to Holocaust. He also spoke on the need for Europeans to take more action towards educating the young generation on the importance of respecting every human race, regardless of their background. Mr. Abdudo said the world can no longer afford to experience another war, another world war of another world war for the sake of human race dominance, but seek lasting solutions to problems the world is currently facing, such as climate change. Never forget where you come from. And always remember what's happened in the past. But it's time that also we need to move forward. That's what we did as Jews. We have not blamed the entire German population. We don't hate them because they didn't do what their grandparents did. We can't hold it as a grudge against the German. So, it's the same for people in Africa. If you hold a grudge against your former oppressors, you will never move ahead. Today we are standing here, white and blacks, colors in India, Jews and Muslims, Christians, and we talk to each other. We talk to each other with respect and dignity. And that's what you have to do. And officiating at the commemoration, Acting Livingston District Commissioner Harriet Kawina said modern generation should endeavor to value coexistence in all spheres without looking at each other's ethnic background. We need to reflect on what this history means for our times. Holocaust history reminds us of the vulnerabilities of human societies in times of rapid change that we cannot begin to comprehend. Consider the difficult questions we face now about free speech and hate speech in the context of internet. The Holocaust seems incomprehensible, but that is precisely why we must comprehend it. It was a watershed in our understanding of humanity. At the beginning of the 20th century, we assumed education and democracy would protect us. 
And United Nations Representative Charles Nonde said the UN will continue advocating for peace and stability in countries world over in order to protect human rights. He said justice for those killed in the Holocaust is not an option but a must as no one deserves to die in such a manner for the sake of their religion or race. On this day we come together to remember one of the most heinous crimes of our time. We pledge that we will never forget. We vow to tell their stories and honor them by defending everyone's rights to live with dignity in a just and peaceful world. Out of these horrors, the United Nations was created to bring countries together for peace and our common humanity and to prevent any repetition of such crimes against humanity. The resurgence of hatred in recent years, from violent extreme extremism to attacks on places of worship, shows that anti-Semitism, other forms of religious bigotry, racism and prejudice are still very much with us. But just as hatred persists, so must our resolve to fight it. Today and every day, we commemorate the victims of the Holocaust by pursuing truth, remembrance and education, and by building peace and justice around the world. Zambia is recorded as home to the oldest Jewish settlement in Africa. Jews first came to Zambia from Lithuania at the end of the 19th century. Many of them settled in Livingston in 1905. Among the most influential Jewish Zambians is Mr. Simon Zukas, who played a key role in Zambia's struggle for independence from Britain in the 1950s and went on to hold two posts as cabinet minister after independence. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekelwa, Livingston, Zambia. It's now time for us to get a quick update with regards to the news headlines. Here is Jwalani Tulo with the latest. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, the South African National Defence Force says there are high-level talks to establish a new government department that will specifically deal with border management. The Mozambican government has suspended issuing visas upon arrival to travellers from China in order to curb the spread of coronavirus. And finally, the authorities in Nigeria say an outbreak of loss of fever has killed 41 people since the beginning of the month. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. 
Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. South African Airways says the restructuring process being undertaken by the business rescue practitioners will aim to preserve jobs where possible. The State Bank and the Development Bank of Southern Africa has committed to give the SAA a drawdown loan of about $240 million. A drawdown loan is a loan which enables the borrower to take out further advances. Economist Mike Schussler elaborates. So I think they need the money. Um, That's not... um you know, in dispute. The thing that I think people are a bit worried about um, is the role of the development bank that we're seeing in this, because I'm not quite sure if uh, a development institution should be bailing out a commercial institution. Now, let's talk a bit about uh, the drawdown loan and what it actually means. We understand that it, it gives the borrower um, uh, the ability to be able to take further advances. Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, a drawdown loan is exactly what it says. It means that mm. uh, when they need the money, mm-hmm. they can go and get ask for the money at the development bank, or if they need that uh, as a backup, uh, they could then go to a um, commercial bank and say, we'll borrow the money there from you, the uh, people at the commercial bank, uh, against the drawdown uh, 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 from the development bank. But mm. I think ultimately they'll t- go straight to the uh, development bank. They'll use them as they do, as they did other banks. This is the, not the first time that we're seeing SAA in, in crisis needing um, uh, money to be able to to do its, its everyday business. Do you think that this will solve SAA's challenges in terms of the long term? No, I don't think so. I think it gives parts of SAA an ability to right-size themselves and get ready for the future. I think there will be parts of SAA that will never see the light of day again. Sure. I think, for example, SAA Technical and Sound will survive. Probably Mango part of SAA can survive. I'm not sure how SAA International part will survive. Um, and SAA is anyway a very small carrier on the local front these days. So... Um, I'm not quite sure if they will just uh, uh, operate under one brand name. Um, But SAA is uh, not going to be the same organization uh, that went into business rescue Mm. when it comes out of business rescue. Um, Every every firm that has been rescued in business, uh, so rescue type stuff, has come out very differently than the one that went in. Uh, mm. I think that's a given. There's been a lot of talk, uh, Mike, around a partial privatization of SAA, or rather the suggestion of that. Could the partial privatization of uh, the of SAA help the national carrier? Well, let's put it this way. You know, very few governments in the world still own their own airlines. Um, so, you know, if you look at KLM, it's owned by Air France, which is partly owned privately. Um, the same with Iberian Airways, which is a private firm which owns parts of British Air. And, uh, uh, you know, so it goes on. You look at Singapore Airlines as private, 
uh, Cathay Pacific, which is Hong Kong, is private. Air India is being sold uh, right now as we speak. Uh, the big difference here is SAA has no more value. It has value in some of the slots at other airports that it have value. It has, uh, uh, it's selling its uh, rest of its aircraft right now as we speak to uh, help with the cash crunch. So it's not going to, you know, I don't know if you can really sell it. Um, what you can do is sell parts of it, um, maybe technical and airships, but the other parts of it have real no value. So I'm not quite sure what they're going to do. It might just be that you will allow parts of it to just close or you'll close mm. them down. And that's the unfortunate thing that they're in now. I mean, uh, uh, um, South Africa has bigger needs than mm. saving 10,000 people's salaries um, with the 28 billion in bailouts over the last decade and a bit, and I think another 13 or 14 billion in equity injections that they've had. Plus, they have um, us, uh, 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 they fly all the MPs and everything, and the state compensates them for that. Once you're messing with that much money, um, you know, could we build hospitals? Could we employ more teachers? Could we perhaps spend it better on nurses? Um, or, in fact, the real poor where development banks should be is putting water, sewerage, roads into areas that are not accessible that easily, that have a very hard time finding finance. Um, that's where a development institution, such as the Development Bank of Southern Africa is, and seeing that we've made it a Southern African uh, Development Bank, does it mean when uh, uh, in Namibia has a problem, we bail them out too? So I think we need to, you know, know what's, what, what the end purpose is, and we don't, because uh, South Africa has over 10 million unemployed people. Yeah, um, yeah. We must, we must focus on, on, on creating jobs and certainty, but also at the other time making sure that the right education happens, the right medical mm-hmm. stuff takes place, and that people that uh, are in line for social grants get them. And that was Mike Schussler, Chief Economist at economist.co.za on the line. The Charter Cities Institute will host the inaugural Charter Cities Conference in Santon, north of Johannesburg in South Africa in March. Organizers say it's significant that this event debuts in Johannesburg as charter cities are geared towards emerging economies and toward regions and nations that are undergoing rapid urbanization. They say the conference will dive deep into the uh, critical imperative of establishing charter cities and special economic zones that enable uh, urbanization and stimulate national, regional and continental economy around people. It will bring together various stakeholders, entrepreneurs, policy experts, investors, real estate developers and politicians to make people-centered economies. More from Dr. Mark Lutter. The founder and executive director of Charter Cities Institute, a non-profit organization creating the ecosystem for charter cities. We are uh, have a conference coming up on March 17th and 18th at the Hilton in Santon, and uh, we're uh, promoting the conference. And so we work with uh, several new city developments, one in Zambia, one in Nigeria, and we're promoting this idea of uh, charter cities as a tool for economic development. So what is it that you think this uh, conference seeks to do? What are you aiming with this conference? So the conference, the idea is to bring together the different stakeholders in uh, the charter city space, 
from the people who are building new cities to government officials to policy experts to investors because we see charter cities, which are new city developments with a special jurisdiction that allows them a more competitive business environment as uh, a powerful tool for economic development, for job creation, for entrepreneurship. And what we want to do is uh, spark a conversation and start uh, creating a set of best practices for the implementation of charter cities. So for somebody who's never heard of charter cities, what are charter cities and how practical is it to build these charter cities? So a charter city is a new city with a special jurisdiction that allows it a more competitive business environment. So over the last uh, 50, 60 years, we've seen cities like Singapore, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, and Dubai become world-class cities when they were uh, impoverished uh, before. And we believe this model is replicable more broadly. And so more specifically, what this means is first identifying some land where you might want to build a new city, um, the government passing a law that says within this land a different set of laws, a different set of rules apply, and then investors building out the infrastructure, things like roads, uh, port, um, electricity, to make it a better place to do business, to foster entrepreneurship. And we believe these projects are uh, quite practical. So we're working with one in Zambia, working with another in Nigeria. We are having discussions with a third in Sierra Leone, and you can come learn more at the Charter Cities Conference on March 17th and 18th. Uh, chartercitiesconference.com uh, is where you can find out more information. So these uh, cities that you've just alluded to, the one in uh, Zambia, are these already in place and are they actually working? So in Zambia, the, the city that we're working with, uh, the first residents are moving in uh, this spring. And we're currently uh, working with the government of Zambia to sign a memorandum of understanding, which will then examine a set of um, administrative reforms that can be enacted to make the city a more competitive place to do business. In Nigeria, they plan to start moving dirt um, later this year to start building infrastructure for the city. And we're currently working with the city developer to figure out uh, what laws and regulations to put in the city that can make it a more attractive place for investment, for uh, entrepreneurship and for economic development. Let's talk more about this conference. You said it's happening in March. Who should attend this conference? Why should they attend it? And who are some of the speakers? Sure. So uh, anybody who's interested in charter cities and the importance of economic development should attend. More specifically, uh, we think that people who have particular interests would be people who work in um, urban planning or who work in uh, economic development, people who are investors, uh, real estate professionals, government professionals. We think they all have a lot to learn. And so some of the speakers, for example, include Herman Mashaba, who is the former mayor of Johannesburg. We have Muya Musokotwane, who is leading the new city development in Zambia. Uh, Dr. Dara Uzu, who is leading the new city development in uh, Nigeria. Um, Ayinawula Aboyeje, uh, who co-founded Andela, which is one of the most uh, successful uh, startups in Africa. He's also leading a new city development in Nigeria. And so anybody who's really interested in um, economic development and investment in, in real estate, um, I think they have a lot to, to come and, and to learn from the conference. And that was Dr. Mark Luther, founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute, speaking to Ntlantla Mathangu. The time is now 17.45 Central African time. Let's cross on over to Nosilja Zuma for your latest economics news.
Thank you, Samara. Good evening. Vodafone Group has agreed a preliminary deal to sell its 55% stake in its Egyptian unit to Saudi Arabia's largest telecoms operator, STC, for $2.4 billion. US dollars. The non-binding deal values Vodafone Egypt at $4.4 billion, and the two companies have agreed to long-term use of the Vodafone brand and other services in Egypt. Vodafone says selling the stake is in line with its effort to streamline its operations to focus on Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa. STC, also known as Saudi Telecom, is majority owned by Saudi Arabia's state fund, the Public Investment Fund. East African Cables is seeking to restructure nearly a fifth of its banked debt, including a 2.83 million US dollar loan to a local lender that has sought to wind it up over the debt. The court petition by SBM Bank to unwind the company was first reported by local media on Monday. Last year, the company and its parent firm restructured 82% of their debts. In a statement to the stock market, the company says it has made significant progress to complete the remaining phase, which includes the debt with SBM Bank Kenya Limited. Small-scale farmers in Ghana, especially producers of cereal crops, have been advised to sell their produce to the Ghana Commodity Exchange to maximize income rather than relying on open market traders. The Wenchi Agricultural Station in the Bono region, which made the call, says the GCX through warehouse receipt system stands a position to help farmers to avoid post-harvest losses and also offers better pricing to make them competitive in the farming business. The wage strike by members of the South African Metal Workers Union, NUMSA, will continue at the Hisense factory in Atlantis outside Cape Town. The factory makes television sets and refrigerators, amongst others. Workers are demanding a 15% wage increase and backdated bonuses. NUMSA says striking members have been locked out of the factory since the strike began 13 days ago. They also protested outside the premises on Tuesday, joined by the local community. There has been no response from Hisense management. NUMSA's regional secretary in South Africa's Western Cape province, Voyo Lufele, says their action will continue until their demands are met. They will be there at the picket line, and I'm sure that they are there already in their numbers. They still stand firm until their demands are met. The strike continues indefinite, and um, communities in Atlantis are fully supporting the strike, and we feel strongly that uh, they are making sure that as community, the strike must be intensified to support those workers until this employer feels it's necessary to come around the table. And finally, the International Monetary Fund forecast that Ethiopia's economy will grow at 6.2% in the 2020 fiscal year, well below the government forecast of 10.8%, but in line with the World Bank estimates. The IMF says performance of goods exports remained weak and foreign exchange shortages persist. Reserves are expected to improve to around $4 billion US dollars by July when the 2020 fiscal year ends, sufficient to cover two months of prospective improvement. 
For your financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 360.76 Nigerian Nara, 10.65 Botswana Bula, at 99.60 Kenyan Shilling, and at 14.54 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 4.20 the Brazilian rule, 62.62 Russian ruble, 71.21 Indian rupee, 6.97 Chinese yuan, and at 14.59 South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,564 and platinum at $987 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is $60.28 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nosishizuna. Now it's time for your latest sport. Here's Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara, from the Sports Desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with Athletics News. Alex Kosana, president of Athletics South Africa, ASA, says Kostosemenia will remain in the Athletics preparation squad for the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo as they await the outcome of her appeal against a court of arbitration for sport, cause ruling that upheld the World Athletics governing body, IAAF, right to discriminate against athletes with differences in sexual development. Semenya was included in the squad in November last year after the Federal Supreme Court of Switzerland ordered the IAAF to suspend its female eligibility regulations with immediate effect, which in fact allowed her to compete in the 400 meters, 800 meters, and 1,500 meter races while the appeal is pending. For now, Alex Kosana says Semenya remains in the team until a final decision from CAS is made. Because the matter is pending, there is no decision. The decision can be positive or the decision can be negative on her side. So it will depend. So we have to include her up until there is finality on the matter. Meanwhile, Athletics South Africa, ASA, and the South African Broadcasting Corporation, SABC, today announced a broadcast agreement to broadcast athletics events for the 2020 season. The announcement took place at the SABC headquarters in Johannesburg. The agreement will see the SABC producing and broadcasting the top five marathons on the ASA calendar, namely the Two Oceans Marathon, Comrades Marathon, Mandela Marathon, Cape Town Marathon and the Soweto Marathon, and a number of other races. President of Athletics South Africa, Alex Kosana, talks about the importance of this deal. Well, this means a lot to all South Africans, irrespective of where they live. As we know that SAPC is a national broadcaster, it uh, reaches out to the remotest uh, hinterlands of our country and um, for that reason alone it is a groundbreaking announcement and a contract or partnership with SAPC as it will be able to help us to spread the message to the young and old for health purposes, for recreational purposes, as well as performance. It will help us to be able to 
inspire schools out there to be able to see Akane Simbini, to see Gerda Stein, to see other promising athletes. Some of them are world champions who have never been profiled by SABC in this country. So we'll have the opportunity to profile them. In football news, South Africa's under-20 women's national football team will face their Zambian counterparts in the second leg of the 2020 FIFA Women's Under-20 World Cup qualifier at Orlando Stadium, south of Johannesburg, on Saturday, February the 1st. The stadium has not hosted many women's football matches, with the recent match being the Olympic qualifier between the country's senior women's team, Banyana Banyana, and Botswana last year, September. Basitana head coach Jabulile Baloyi says they are looking forward to play the Copa Belt Queens in their own backyard after having won the first leg 2 nearly two weeks ago in Lusaka. And I think it's a good thing that we're playing at Orlando Stadium. Uh, from, if I remember correctly, it's been quite a while since uh, Orlando's, Orlando Stadium has hosted uh, women's football national teams. So it will be a great uh, day for us, especially a junior team, because the last time they play uh, a senior uh, a national team played was, it was Banyana playing against Botswana for the Olympic qualifiers, which we did not do very well, but. Uh, with the team that is uh, going to play uh, is Zambia this time, I'm hoping that we give uh, the people of Soweto a memorable time or memorable uh, and desired uh, results. And finally, in tennis news. Dominic Thiem made a significant breakthrough at the Australian Open on Wednesday, upsetting world number one Rafael Nadal, 7-6-7-6-4-6-7-6 at Rodleva Arena. The Austrian recorded his first Grand Slam victory against the 2009 champion in six attempts to reach his first semi-final at the opening Grand Slam of the year. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Etioch. Money. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Leb Muswewu, technical producer Tumala Mukwena, and the rest of the team, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to join us again from 1900 Hours for more news from an African perspective. In the meantime, though, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or follow us on Twitter at channelafrica1. On Facebook, you'll find us on Channel Africa. Or you can send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. Channel Africa from an African perspective. Now it's time for us to take it to the top of the hour with a song titled Zabalaza by Tandiswa Zwai. We'll see you later. Oh,
Salawanji nonsu uko kumalawi, Zambia, Mozambiki, Zimbabwe, South Africa, ndikuina kuli kwa nsemuli.